John chapter 5, the passage from which the teaching is based this morning is John chapter 5, verses 19 down through verse 30. If you have a Bible or you want to use your bulletin, please stand with me as we read God's Word together. John chapter 5, beginning at verse 19. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees his father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. Also, the son gives life to the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself... So he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. This passage in John 5 invites us into community. But it's not a theoretical community where there's the shaking of hands and a few shallow hugs. It is a community of rest. It is a community that is for us a haven. It is founded on the most radical idea in human history that Jesus Christ is head of his church. And the qualifications to be a member of Christ's church requires you only to admit that you do not deserve membership. Entrance into this community comes through desperation, brokenness, Need, Because this king, unlike every king you've seen or watched or read about or experienced, this king, the king of this community, loves you too much to leave you in the hopelessness of your false saviors and your silly idols. He wants you to experience his community. And that's what we're about as a church experiencing what it means to live inside this grand narrative and this grand story. And John 5 teaches us that Jesus has healed a man who had been an invalid for 38 years. And he invites this man into the community of the healed, of the restored, of those who go and sin no more. Not that they're sinless after they come to know Christ or they have an experience with him, but they know that the only way to live life is through repentance and joyful following after him. This one who this man has the opportunity to follow but chooses not to because he goes in tattletales to the Jewish leaders. This one who has the chance to follow King Jesus 
calls 12 men. He reconstitutes the nation of Israel in these 12 men. And he is calling forth out of all the nations of the world. He sends out 72 to evangelize the world. The number 72 that Jews would have known represents the number of nations of the world. Jesus is calling the entire world into a new community of which he is the head. And this passage tells us in this famous, the longest speech Jesus ever gives to the Jews about his own identity. It tells us that Jesus Christ believes he is divine and in his divinity calls us into a new community and tells us to find life and community and purpose here. And he does so in three ways, according to the text. He does so first by showing us the authority of the Son. He does so by showing us the judgment of the Son. And he does so thirdly by showing us the honor that is due to the Son. His authority, his judgment, and his honor. And when you understand these things, you begin to get a vision of what it means to be part of the true community, the true Israel, God's people, the community of Christ. So let's look together. What does it mean to have life under the authority of the Son? Verse 21, lower your eyes to your bulletins or to your Bibles and look at the text. It says, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Now, all communities, including your own, live out some comprehensive story that gives meaning and shape and direction to their life, no matter what community you find yourself to be a part of. And the dominant story of our and every culture is rooted in an idolatrous vision of what it means to live the good life. And the ultimate confidence of humanity is to have an assurance that humanity is able to discern and figure out its own way of salvation, its own authority, its own place of submission is found in some grand narrative that it begins to believe leads them to the good life. So, for example, um, Stephanie Germanotta, who we all know as Lady Gaga, the great theologian, burst on the scene 10 years ago. And she and Bradley Cooper sure know how to sing well together, don't they? But like every rock star of previous generations, Lady Gaga knows that her audience that once gave her life now demand life from her. My entire life has been a performance, she says. I get the energy for the next day by the sound of their applause. What once began to be a joy for her turned her into a rock star overnight. And you can go see her compound in Malibu and you recognize quickly that the isolation and the struggle to live an ordinary, normal life for her has led to her to be like some kind of like Tesla looking for the next supercharging station, pulling applause. And frankly, Stephanie Germanotta is no different than you and me. We're all a little bit like Teslas, right? We think they're really cool to look at, and we're struggling to figure out where the supercharging stations are so we can plug ourselves in to give us the energy for the next day. I know how many times you guys check your bank account. I know how some of you check Zillow to see if your house has gone up in value. 
I know how some of you are always assessing your life. Listen, it's exhausting when you're trying to find a place to charge up your batteries. One of Lady Gaga's, you know, idols, pardon the pun, is, you know, David Bowie, who he himself said, I'm the rock star of all rock stars. And from 1972 to 1976, he was. He said, you know, it's pretty, it's, uh, you may wonder, he, David Bowie said, if it, if it really is um, as amazing as you might think to be a rock star married to a supermodel. And David Bowie says, it is. But this is the same man also who later on said that it would be my guess that most rock stars are not very happy people. And from my own experience, having gone through persona changes like that, that kind of clawing need to be the center of attention is not a very pleasant place to be. Whether a rock star or a suburban dad, all of us are clawing to be needed. And all of us figure out what the authority idol is or authority structure is in our life, and we find ourselves worshiping it. The rabbis had a saying that only God can do three things. Only God can send rain, only God can make the wind blow, and only God can raise the dead. And Jesus here in this passage isn't merely claiming to be like God. Jesus is claiming to be God. Verse 21, it says, the Son also gives life to whom he will. And that is a claim that Jesus believes himself to be divine. And by healing this man, Jesus gives a snapshot of not only what God can do, raise the dead and give life, but also what he has the authority to do, which he will demonstrate later in John chapter 11 when he raises Lazarus, and then ultimately when he himself is raised after his own crucifixion. Verse 26, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. It's not that Jesus has the power to give life. Jesus is life himself. And this life is offered to us in the gospel. And it, throughout Scripture, it refers to two things. One, that we have a new life, a new identity available to us now. And secondly, that there is a resurrection life coming for us at the end of time. As for the new identity that we get now, look at verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he has passed from death to life. And after he heals Lazarus, you know, some of you know that Jesus himself said, I am the resurrection of the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Good question. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is a new creation, behold, the old has passed away and the new has come. Not only does Jesus have the authority and the ability to give you life now, but he also promises, promises to give us life in the future, the great resurrection, to give us whole life, to complete our life, to raise us up to be whole, what we always would want to be. The Jews believed in the resurrection of the dead. In Daniel 12, it says, And many of those who fall asleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to everlasting contempt. And Jesus is saying in this passage, I'm the fulfillment of what happens in Daniel, just like Lydia read earlier. I am the true son of man. 
Paul says, what is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It's sown in dishonor and it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. It's sown in a natural body. Those of us who are getting older know this feeling of this. It's raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. And on Paul goes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 to explain more about what the resurrection means. But Jesus is saying that I have life in myself. I'm not like Tony Robbins. I'm not like preachers who promise you if you live this way, you'll have a good life. He is life. Thomas Chalmers was the greatest of the Scottish theologians. He lived in the 18th and 19th centuries. And Chalmers wrote an article called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection, where he wrote, there are two ways in which a practical moralist may attempt to displace from the human heart its love for the world. Either, number one, by a demonstration of the world's vanity, by running after what's new, what shines, what glitters, going after it, plugging your Tesla into the supercharging station, or exchanging an old affection for a new and better one. And Chalmers goes on to argue that the only way that you're able to find the kind of rest in the authorities that you have is to recognize not just the vanity of your current idolatry, but to recognize what you would be getting if you chose Christ. What you would be getting. Listen, what you hold to be your authority is so culturally dependent upon your time and history and circumstance that frankly, it should scare you that you're so fickle. It does me. Most of us, if not all of us in this room, perhaps profess Christianity in some way, shape, or form. But you notice how fickle your heart is. And I'm not just talking about you. I'm talking about me, too. And it should scare you that your heart is swayed so quickly. Your authority is reaffirmed or it's switched based upon the way you answer these three questions. Your self-understanding, who are you? Your vision of the good life. Where are you headed? And your means of accomplishing it. How do you know the way? You answer those three questions and we'll figure out, we'll triangulate together what your authority is. Who are you? Where are you headed? And how do you know the way to get there? Answer those three questions and you'll be able to find. I dare you, answer those three questions this week. Sit down before you go to bed in the quietness of the evening and just say, who am I? Who do I really believe I am? Where am I headed? How do I know how to get there? And when you answer those questions, you'll find that those have revealed the authority under whom you worship. And to understand your authority, you have to understand yourself in relationship to it. And if you rely on yourself or the power of reason or your internal moral compass, you will be exhausted because they are not reliable. In the 80s and 90s, most sociologists believed, most uh, social psychologists wrote in all the journals about how reason is the primary medium by which we are to understand what our morality is. And now today, most psychologists or so, so, uh, social psychologists will teach that it's not your reason that determines what your morality is, but it's a combination of your reasons and your emotions. You're much more holistic in how you choose to believe what is true and what is false. 
Jonathan Haidt, for example, wrote in The Righteous Mind that a moral position, you have a professing Christian and a professing, uh, you know, uh, uh, adherent to some other faith and an atheist. Doesn't matter. He said they have shown that they can change people's moral positions by smell. And he argues that so much of us are swayed by emotions, not just by cognitive reasoning. And all the more reason why we need something to hold us firm to the truth. All the more reason why we are like shifting sands. And it should scare you how many authority structures you change to worship over the course of your life. Because you're so culturally informed, you're a fish in the water. You don't even recognize you're in the water. If we could only have an authority structure that held out its arms to us in love, if we could only have an authority structure that could pierce our criticism by saying to us, you, know you want to know how much I care for you and how good I am? I will sacrifice myself. We would believe that about almost every other authority structure. But when it comes to Jesus, we tend to just say, yeah, 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 we've heard the gospel before. But Christ accomplishes for us exactly what we would demand of any other authority structure. Prove that you're good. Okay, I will sacrifice myself for you. And Christ does that. Robert Farrell Capone once said that cynicism is just a temporary shelter and it lasts as long as you have enough pain to keep your unbelief going. What is your authority structure? And in this passage, Jesus is saying, I am divine and I offer you life because life is in me. Do you see it? Do you know how much he loves you? He's calling you to bow before him. And second, he teaches us that community is found in the judgment of the son. To what community would you say that your life belonged? Some of you may have heard this this week. There were, uh, on NPR, there's a story about a, a man who was an executive. He was a vice president, and he was switching firms, and he was being interviewed by a lady in the HR department. And uh, it's somewhere along the way, the interview switched, and he found himself interviewing her. And he asked her, to what community would you say your life belonged? And she started crying. And she thought about the fact that she has adult children who don't come home for Thanksgiving or Christmas anymore. How she has friends, but they're, she's not really known by anybody. How she really doesn't like her job, but she knows it pays the bills. And how would you answer that question? To what community does your life belong? Because all of you have a community. You have some grand narrative by which you're defining your life. What is it? Where do you belong? In verse 22, it says, the Father has given all judgment to the Son. This is another claim to deity since only God has the right to render judgment. And God the Father is saying, no, I have given this responsibility. I have handed it to my son because it is through my son that the world will be judged. And for us as Christians, we know that 
we are judged by Christ, which is a wonderful good news for us because it means that Christ, who has sacrificed himself for us, who was raised again on the third day, if we place our faith in what he has done for us, we are covered by his blood, so though guilty with sin all the way through. When we stand before the Father, it is the Lord Christ who renders judgment for us and says, no, Brandon's innocent. No, Ryan is innocent. No, Ben is innocent. And he's not only innocent, but he has all of my righteousness. And the Father sings over us just like he sings over Christ. There's no better news than that. All of our performance treadmill work dies and falls at the cross. And Jesus says, you can have the righteousness that you've always wanted by performance, but you can't earn it through morality. You earn it through faith and repentance because that faith is even given to you. You don't earn it at all. It's a gift. Romans 4 says, for what does the scripture say? But Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And Paul says in Philippians 3, oh, that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, even though that I was perfect as unto the law, a Pharisee of Pharisee, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a straight A student as it involves morality, but that my righteousness would come through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Because he says in 2 Corinthians 5, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in Jesus we might be the very righteousness of God. Amen? This is the good news, friends. And Jesus invites us into that community. And he says before the Sanhedrin and the Jews in John chapter 5, and he says it before all of us again today, I have the power of judgment. Do you know me? Do you want to be part of my community? What makes a beautiful church? In the ancient world, they would use public um, buildings. They called them basilicas, where they would hold Roman civil court, and they used them as a church plant, much like we use public school buildings today. And then later, when Constantine became emperor and on down to Theodosius II, who imperialized Christianity, then we began to build our own beautiful churches. But what makes a church beautiful? Is it the building? In the Roman Catholic Church, they inculcated this into what they call ex-cathedra. Cathedra sounds like the world cathedral because the cathedrals of the Middle Eastern, uh, the, the uh, medieval world were always the places where the bishops would hold court. Some cathedrals would be large, some would be big, but the one thing they have in common is that it's the bishop's church. And in that cathedral, they would have, whether big or small, the building, they would have a throne, and on that throne, that bishop would speak ex-cathedra as he communicated what the Pope said. And in Rome, there would be a throne where the Pope would sit, and he would speak ex-cathedra, out from the throne, literally. And as Protestants who protested in 1529 against the Roman Catholic Church, we don't believe that the Lord speaks today ex-cathedra from the proclamation of men, but he speaks from the throne of his holy word. And we might as Christians not say ex-cathedra, but we might say ex-Christi. From out of Christ comes our power and our authority and our judgment. What makes a beautiful church? After the restoration in London, public taxes were given to build 59 churches back in London. 
But do beautiful church buildings make a church beautiful? No. What makes a beautiful church? It's people who are living ex Christi, out of Christ. They're living out his life with innovation and consistency with what he's called us to be in him. And we're able to do that not because we are fearful of judgment, but because we know our judgment's already in heaven, spotless. And so for some of you who walk in fear, unfurl your wings and fly. Like, what would it be like? Some of you know that in a couple of weeks, I'm going to be on sabbatical for a number of months. What would it be like if we, during that time, with innovation and consistency, began to depend not on programs that were channeled through the staff or through me or through Scott, but what if we decided to be able to be the light of the world as we use our own gifts in our community? What if we wanted to go and help those through mercy trips? What if we wanted to be those who wanted to organize and schedule, not waiting for the staff and the church to do it, but we gathered our community group and we said, hey, we're going to throw a huge party for our neighborhood and just cook hot dogs and hamburgers and just celebrate the fact that our suburb is a great place to live and invite other people into it. What if you, and I challenge you to do this, what if you begin to pray right now for three families that live near you or in your circle, and that you, over the course of the summer and into the fall, would invite three families, every family in this church, to invite three families to come to Trinity. Not because we're trying to grow the church, but because we're trying to live ex Christi. We're living out the life of faith in Christ. And it changes everything about us. Not because we're trying to somehow avoid judgment, but because we know judgment has already been set in the heavens for us. And that Christ gives us all the power we need to live the life that we long to live. That would make a beautiful church. What if we led by repentance in our home? What if we didn't demand that we always had to be right? What if the goal of morality stopped being victory for your tribe? and started being the pursuit of truth, that would be beautiful. Friends, the power of the local church to heal the world cannot be overstated. But it starts with us, knowing that our authority is in Christ, knowing that we are under judgment, that we have received the pardon of God the Father through the work of Christ, and now we can go unfloor our wings and fly. Run, John, run, Bunyan once wrote. The law commands, but it gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. Third, not only is our life found under the authority of the Son, our community is found by the judgment of the Son, but our purpose is found in honor of the Son. To honor Jesus is to honor the Father. That's what it says in verse 23. In fact, we too can know God as our Father if we honor Jesus, that is, if we believe in him. To say that I am to be honored for Jesus was to say to the Jews, I am to be worshipped. Jesus stepped up to the plate and said, I am God and I am to be worshipped. He made no bones about it. The leader of every other religion in history tells you what to worship, and Jesus himself tells us that you are to worship me, he says. 
And one of the ways that we honor Christ is by taking initiative in the areas where we spend a third of our life, that is our work. Or if you're students at school. And what would it be like if we um, were able to live out the gospel in a place of our employment? Wouldn't that be beautiful? How do you do it? Well, Gary Gittner thought he wanted to be a cross-cultural missionary many, many years ago. Instead, God led Gary to a life of service in the world of business. He was a founding partner for the Chicago Research and Trading Group. It was an investment company that at one point the Wall Street Journal called the envy of the industry. And Gary went on to lead an investment company. He became the CEO of Vast Power Systems. He was a principal of three other commercially, uh, commercial companies. He started about 20 other businesses along the way. But Gary Gittner refused to define himself by the traditional measures of profit and power. And for Gary Gittner, success in the business world, as in all of his life, was defined in relationship to the coming of God's kingdom. And in Gary's words, anyone called to live out the implications of the biblical story in the world of business will be a kingdom-minded professional. Kingdom professionals do not define, he writes, success in terms of money or job or status. They seek to maximize, they do not seek to maximize their income or their security or their status or to advance their careers. Instead, they seek to maximize their impact on the people and places to which God has called them. And Gary Gittner honored Christ by allowing the success the measure of his success to be by contributing to what God was up to in his neck of the woods. And as we see the way God is working in our neck of the woods, that we would use our giftedness to be stewards and entrepreneurs of the gospel in creative ways. Some of us hear stories like Gary Gittner and say, gee, thanks for giving me a story I can't relate to because I'm not a CEO of anything. Well, friends, neither was Richard James, so let me just shoot you straight. He, rich, he worshiped with Gary Gittner, but he couldn't relate to anything in Gary Gittner's world. He worked for a print shop, and he had the amazing task, Richard James did, of cutting out labels of dog food cans and putting them on the cans. He did it every day, every day, every day. It was a very boring task. It was monotonous, but he had to do it to pay the bills. It was the only job he could get. But as Richard James began to realize that Adam, Adam, too, was called to care for his creation and cultivate the garden, Adam was to till the earth from the ground and bring things into being, Richard began to see that in the simple act of cutting dog food labels out and putting them on the can, he was bringing something into being, small as it was, and Richard began to worship as he worked, even in a very monotonous task. And I know some of you frankly, work jobs that are very monotonous. And the more monotonous your job is, the more frequently you are to change it because you just can't stand doing the same thing for that long, and we get that. Those of us who are white collars tend to have jobs we stick at for quite a long time. Those of us who are blue collars tend to change jobs more frequently because the jobs may feel more monotonous. But regardless of how monotonous it is, you have a role to play in honoring Christ in whatever it is that you do. Dallas Willard says that both the liberals and the, and the evangelical interpretation of Christian discipleship is nothing less than a standing invitation to omit, omit God from the course of our daily existence. 
Liberals omit him by making Jesus the collective reflection of their own values to free the oppressed. While evangelicals tend to admit him by making Jesus a moral guide to keep us safe from radical sacrifice, suffering, or change. I could go on and on about the way that we honor Christ from moms making peanut butter sandwiches for their kids at lunch to doing the laundry to taking care of your yard, whatever it is. See yourself in light of the much greater story that gives dignity and honor to even the smallest of tasks that we do as Christians. Nothing is off limits to the Lord in terms of what he's called you to do and to be for your family. And therefore, he has a right to speak into every area of our life, no matter how sensitive it might be. Jesus has all authority. That's our opportunity. Jesus is responsible for all our judgment. That's our destiny. Jesus is due all honor. That's our mission. So welcome to the community, friends. Jesus says that those who hear me those who hear my voice come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the uh, resurrection of judgment. He's not saying those who are morally good and those who are morally bad. He's saying those who place their faith in me, that's good. And those who have rejected me, chosen their own authority structures, those are the ones who do evil. Don't you see that Jesus has provided for you a vista He's opened up the French doors for you on the pavilion of the ocean view. And he says, come, experience the expulsive power of a new affection in me. Lay down your good deeds. Repent not just for your bad deeds, but, oh, Christian, repent also for your good deeds done for bad reasons. And run to him. Our authority, the one who judges us, and the one to whom we are to give all honor and praise and glory forever and ever. Do you believe this? See your Savior. He's calling you. Run to him. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would help us to not run from one charging station to another, but that you would help us to find rest at the foot of your cross. And that you would help us to recognize that the life that we have always dreamed of having is right before us, offered to us. May you help us see our greatest joy is found in, as Diedrich Bonhoeffer says, coming and dying so that you may live your life in and through us. Shepherd us, we pray. Lead us to your cross. Prepare us to come to this table. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.